Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. We are approaching the end of our study of uh, at least the, the first part of, of David's story from shepherd to king. Uh, and so we will be there, Lord willing. First um, Samuel, rather, chapter 30. We want to look at the first 11 verses, although originally we want to look at the whole chapter, but there's just so much here, these first 11 verses. And with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for, for God's holy word. The writer of 1 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites made a raid against Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. When David and the men who were with him raised their voices and wept until they, no more, they had no more strength to weep, David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Car- Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for still allowing us to, to gather here this morning, even amid some of the challenges we face um, internationally and nationally and locally. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts, that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our hearts or our, our, our uh, mouths that we would speak the truth of Christ, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our eyes that we would see your glory, and our hands and our feet that we would go in obedience to Christ. May we be transformed and see your glory all the more. Name your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. I have no doubt you're familiar with the often used uh, trope in cartoons, particularly Looney Tunes, Tom and Jerry, you know, the good ones. And uh, what you would have, have is, is your, your character would, would go through a series of unfortunate events. Let's just imagine one. They, uh, they are uh, uh, in the middle of the episode and a train randomly just runs over them, right? And that train takes them to the edge of a cliff where they are going to fall. Or they're going to walk off the edge of a cliff, not realize that they are walking on air until they look down, realizing they're no longer on land. And then they start to fall. Whatever scenario you want, you can come up with a dozen others. Uh, and then as they're falling off that, that cliff, what are they going to do? They're going to hit every little branch that's randomly sticking off the cliff. Then they're going to land at the bottom of that cliff, right? And, and it's going to be in shape of their body, right? And then they're going to uh, raise up. And what are you going to find? You, they're going to have the, the nodders on their head, stars, their eyes are going to be crossed, and they're just going to be a bit woozy. And then what's going to happen? A giant piano at random is just going to fall out of the sky and land on top of them. They're going to look like uh, uh, our boy here, right? I mean, we've, we've seen this scenario a million times. Those who had a happy childhood and watched 
uh, Looney Tunes growing up, you know exactly what it is I'm talking about. In fact, you can watch a YouTube video that, that gives you uh, a lot of these tropes. Just And there's Tom and Jerry, and there's Tiny Tunes, and Looney Tunes, and, and all, all kinds of them, where that is precisely what happens. For some reason, pianos falling on people, we just find hilarious. Well, in many ways, what you have here in, in David is a series of unfortunate events that you think, surely it can't get any worse than this. And then we find in Ziklag, the piano has fallen on David and his men. Think about the story of David so far. It began with a series of successes. It begins in chapter 16 with the anointing of David to be the next king by the great prophet Samuel himself. And in the next chapter, David, still minding his own business, goes to, to provide a... Um, he's working for DoorDash for, for his brothers. They're, they're waiting to fight the Philistines. And what does he find? He finds a giant. And here is this, this little boy, this, this little shepherd boy, armed with a slingshot, slaying the great giant. He then enters the king's household and administration. He, he becomes a commander uh, within uh, Saul's administration. And there he just has one success after another. And, the, and so you think, well, David's just going to waltz right into the throne room and take the throne for himself. And then all of a sudden, it has been one bad thing after another. It all started with jealousy fueling the heart of the king. First, it was verbal threats. Then it was a thrown spear. Then it was hired killers. Then it was dangerous missions. And then it was personal vendetta. David's wife betrays him, and so he is forced to flee again. Cities of refuge turn him in. Priests are slaughtered on his account. His friendships are lost. His marriage is taken. And everywhere he goes throughout his homeland, he is a hunted, wanted criminal. Eventually, in order to escape the series of unfortunate events... He flees to the nation he once warred against. But instead of just resting at the southern tip of the Philistine nation, he, he is forced to fight for them. The nation he used to fight against, now he must fight for. And, and initially he thinks he can get around some of those regulations. He hired a very good lawyer. But eventually he is tasked by his king to war not just against the Philistine enemies, but the Philistine enemy, and that is the people of Israel itself. However, the generals see, take one look at David, and they say, not, not this guy. We don't trust him. He'll never be one of us. He'll always be one of them. And so they send David back home. And for three days, you can see David and his army walking defeated. And this is not just the first defeat David and his men have faced. It has been one after another. Until in the distance, he sees smoke rising from his home. And that's when the piano falls on his head. He thought he had finally reached rock bottom, only to discover it could get far worse. Notice this is after this three-day journey. They see not just that the city has been captured, or rather the city is burning, but it was raided by, he doesn't know yet, the Amalekites. He doesn't know that yet. He won't find that out until he interrogates a suspect. But he finds the city burned, and in this raid, all of, his, all of their wives and children are captured, and there is nothing left behind. 
Now, the reason why kings typically didn't just round up their entire army was to prevent things like this. Remember that Achish sees that, that Saul is vulnerable. And Saul is vulnerable, as we'll see in chapter 31, uh, with the defeat of Saul and the death of Saul and Jonathan. Spoiler alert. But, 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 but Achish, what he does is, is in gathering all of his army, exposes his entire nation to raids like this. And so when David is called by Achish to, to gather at Aphek, which is the northern part of, of, of the Philistine nation, uh, he, he, he exposes Ziklag. They're, they're unprotected. What is to keep the Amalekites or the Israelites or the Egyptians or anyone else from simply raiding Ziklag? There is no one there to protect him. And that is what has happened. They are vulnerable to attack, and attack is exactly what they suffered. Now, although we don't know this yet in the text, it is worth noting that the Amalekites have been a thorn in Israel's side for much of 1 Samuel, particularly in the life of David. The, the first real reference worth looking at here is in chapter 14. Chapter 14 is, is when Saul is told by Samuel to go and to uh, fight the, the Amalekites. And so we see that uh, Saul... Uh, had to fight the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, and the Zobites, I guess that's what they're called, the Philistines, and then eventually the Amalekites. And so it is in the next chapter where we see, chapter 15, where Saul's particularly told to fight the Amalekites. You remember, he's supposed to wipe them all out. And what does Saul do? He keeps one for a pet. Keeps, keeps King Agag alive so he can brag to all of his, his, the boys, right, uh, through his group text, hey, look, I wiped everyone else out, but I kept the prize for myself, right? And you remember what Samuel had to do when he discovered what had happened. He had to famously or infamously, perhaps, hack Agag to pieces. But that's not where the story of Amalekites ends in the story of, of, of Saul and David and, and Israel. In chapter 27, remember what David did. He's with the, the Philistines, and, and Achish wants David to keep fighting, but he wants David to fight against Amalekite enemies. But David doesn't want to fight against Amalekite enemies. He ain't got no beef with them. What he's got a beef with is the Jewish enemies. So what David does is he targets nations that are enemies of Israel but are neutral to the Philistines. One of those nations is the Amalekites. You see it there in chapter 27, verse 8. So David wages war against the Amalekites, which now makes the Philistines enemies of the Amalekites. So here you have a Jewish military leader living among the Philistines, attacking the Amalekites. No wonder, then, we find the Amalekites raiding Ziklag. So just as Saul did to the Amalekites in chapter 14 in that he, he raided and captured the Amalekites, so now the Amalekites do to David here in chapter 30. Now what I want us to spend our time in in these opening 10 verses is what is the response to this raid? Well, at least emotionally here, we'll look at the military response, Lord willing, this, this evening. But what is the initial response of David and his men to the discovery of a city burned, wives and children captured, and they are at the brink of surrender? I want us to notice, first of all, they respond with great sorrow. David and his men act naturally. You see it there in verse 3 and 4, don't you? And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. 
This, of course, is a natural reaction. Their beloved homes are destroyed, their property is burned, their wives and children are kidnapped. Just, just again, put yourself in David's shoes. Put yourself in, in one of the, the, the soldiers of David's armies. Put, put yourself in, in their armored boots. What would your reaction be? Panic, sorrow, tears, lamentations. The men weep until they lack the strength to weep. Now think about that. Here you have mighty men of valor, they'll be known as in, in 2 Corinthians and in 1-2 Chronicles. Mighty men of valor brought to their knees to the point of no strength left in them. I think today the, the phrase that we would use is something like a crying oneself to sleep. That you, you weep to the point that your body simply has no more energy. This is where they are. These are men of shield and strength and swords. And yet, they are now men of sorrow. And no doubt, we've all had these moments of horror, moments of fear and sorrow and agony to this point of exhaustion. The thought of going on, the thought of moving forward, the thought of continuing Seems unthinkable. I know we often think of David as this mighty man and warrior and king, but let us not forget that David is flesh and blood like you and me. His decision and compromises has led him down this path. And you can see David sort of working through this in his own heart. Had, had he not fled to the Philistines, had he not landed in Ziklag, would his, would his family still be okay? And here he has been trusted with, with, with the family of, of his men who he, he loves and trusts him and are loyal to him. And now they're lost. They're gone. For all he knows, they are dead. They have been tortured. They are enslaved. They, 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 they've been spread apart. And he may never find them ever again. Can you imagine the panic? Can you imagine the sorrow? Can you imagine the fear? And he realizes that his foolishness has endangered everyone around him. And he realizes that sin will make victims of us all. But isn't just sorrow that we see in this scene, as real as it is? But notice how quickly sorrow leads to anger. Notice verses 5 and 6. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul. Now, notice that it doesn't take long for sorrow, for fear, for agony, for uncertainty to turn into anger. The bridge between sorrow and anger is not very long. And you'll notice how the narrator tells the story. The narrator wants us to zero in, not just on the pain of the soldiers, as real as that is, but really on the, the pain of David. So it isn't just everyone's lost their, their wives and children, but in particularly David has lost his wife and children. No, no, that isn't because his wives and children are more important, but because the, the narrator wants you to see what it is David is going through. Again, you, you, you are already at the point of defeat. 
ready to give up, thinking that 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 throne will never happen. You've made too many mistakes and all is lost. You might as well surrender now. You're an enemy of the the Philistines. You're an enemy of of your own people, the Jews. And and, and now here, here you have more sorrow upon sorrow. And then what happens now while you are, you are lamenting the loss of your wives and children? What is it you discover? Now your own men are turning against you. Well, this, this, is, this is to emphasize the, the, the increase of sorrow for, for David. That, that this insult, or adding insult to, to the entry. And so what we need to see here is how quick and easy it is for humans to scapegoat. Have you ever thought about that? If we become angry, if we are confused, if we are uh, uncertain of things, if we are driven by fear and doubt and, and agony and pain and everything else, no, don't you and I, aren't we quick to blame someone else? Well, not my fault. His fault. Ain't my fault. Boss's fault. Ain't my fault. It's my brother's fault. That was usually true. It's not my fault. It's the governor's fault. It's not my fault. It's the president's fault. Hey, I voted for the other guy, y'all. We are quick to scapegoat. We are quick to to find an easy answer to a complicated problem. If only we fixed this, if only we got rid of them, if only we did this or that, all of our problems will go away. Guess what's going to happen? You can make those changes. You can go in that direction. And guess what? You're going to have to scapegoat the the next solution. Or maybe you see yourself as a solution. Guess what you're going to find out? Problems are going to rise. People are going to struggle. Uncertainty is going to go to result. And then guess what? Now you're the scapegoat. You're the one that's going to be uh, left aside. And given that these men have followed David and, and, and have refuge with him in Ziklag, it is reasonable to see why they feel so sour. And this is what makes leadership, frankly, so emotionally and spiritually draining. In one moment, you've got everyone on board. Everyone understands the vision, believes the vision, moving forward the vision. And you think, man, things are going great. And in an instant, something can happen all of a sudden. You are all alone. It is often used, quote, usually in reference to presidents and other leaders, but it is still true that it is always lonely at the top. Shakespeare said in his his work, Henry IV, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. You see, if David is going to get all the credit for all the good stuff he's done, slaying giants, defeating foes, he's also going to get all the blame for the bad things that happen like the capturing and the destruction of, of, of his families and his home. The fickleness of a mob is a well-established fact. And this is why conviction is crucial to good and godly leadership. Not just conviction, but I would say that a foundation of faith, that, 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 that unless your certainty, unless your, your contentment is found in something bigger and better than the mob, bigger and better than the organization, bigger and better than, 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 than everyone else, then, then leadership may not be for you. You will rise, but you will quickly fall. We must lead with conviction. And so a desire to be loved by man will always lead in compromise and disaster. So again, put yourself in David's shoes for a minute. While still in grief, no doubt questioning his own abilities and decisions, his insecurities will start dominating his mind as it does all of us. And it is in that context his men turn against him. 
And what makes this, art, this moment so hard, it isn't just the betrayal he may feel or the sorrow of, of his loss, but the growing belief that critics may in fact be right. Have you ever had that moment? As bad as the situation may be, what really adds the insult, the injury, what really is the piano collapsing on top of you is the belief that everything people have been saying about you, everything about those who have been loyal to you before, everything they're saying, it must be true. And so all of these insecurities come out. Maybe I am a poor leader. Maybe I am a failure. Maybe I should quit. Maybe I should surrender. And you'll notice here in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, we, we, we see the, the real motivation of their anger. They were bitter in soul. It is hard to do, but it will be helpful to consider the real motivation behind people's words and actions. How often have you said or done things out of anger, fatigue, hurt, sorrow, and bitterness you later regretted? I think all of us have, haven't we? No wonder some scholars believe that out of this, this bitter anger directed towards David in this moment of, 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 of deep pain, David writes Psalm 25. We can't prove it, but some scholars believe. For example, in Psalm 25, verse 16 to 18, he says, Turn to me, speaking of God, and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. We see a different David here, don't we? As the text will reveal with how David responds. But you'll notice here, he says, I am lonely. I am alone. I am broken. And I realize my insecurities are showing me that my sin have led me down this path. And I'm starting to believe everything the critics say, regardless of their motivation, must be true. I'm ready to surrender. I'm ready to give up. What is most striking about this scene that really just stuck out to me is the parallels we have between David here and Moses in Exodus chapter 17. Remember in Exodus 17 that they were ready to stone Moses. You remember that, right? Because uh, I don't know if you know this, but people of God have a tendency to complain. I'm just going to let that comment hang out in, 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 in the open air. You can do with that whatever you want. But the people of God love to complain. I'm sure non-people of God love to complain too. But, but in the text, the people of God are kind of whiny. Let's just be honest. I wanted a different color of carpet. That's what they were complaining to Moses, right? We're tired of this sand. We want padded pews every Saturday, right? That's probably what they were complaining about. You have to read the text. It's in the Hebrew. But then... After they were ready to stone Moses, you want to know what, what Moses ends up having to do? He wages war against the Amalekites. Sound familiar? Here is David, about to be stoned by his own men. And he has to prepare to wage war against the Amalekites. Maybe the Bible was trying to tell us, not just about the nature of the people of God, but the nature of men and women in general. How fickle we can be. How quick to, to rash response we can be. How dangerous and how, how difficult leadership can be. And so a proper response is necessary, not just for men like Moses and David, but for you and me in these trying times. Before we look at the third response, can we just pause for a minute and consider how should we respond if you are David in this situation, 
blame for all the world's problems. And how we should respond if we are one of the soldiers in this situation, wanting to blame David for all the world's problems. First of all, how should we respond if we were David and thus assaulted by the, the bitterness and hurt of other people? Well, as hard as it may sound, the meek Christian will seek to understand that hurt people hurt people. Okay? You've got to grasp that. Hurt people hurt people. At the same time, loved people love people. Forgiven people forgive people. Embitter people embitter people. Those who are hurt will indeed hurt. So first of all, notice that in humility, we must learn not to personalize everything people say and do. Right? We have a tendency to do that, right? Someone's going to post something nasty online. You feel like you've been subtweeted or maybe they tagged you in it. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to send you a gym. It's going to insult your soul. That's what you deserve. Or we, we allow our insecurities to dominate our soul, don't we? Well, everything they're saying must be true because they said it. Because I've been feeling it for all these years. And now it must be true. No, no, no. We, we must do humbly understand as meek believers, you cannot personalize everything people say in their moment of pain. How many times have you said things you then regretted? Done things you later regretted that had you arrested your emotions, arrested your sorrow, arrested your, your, your anger, then, then you would have never thought, because you don't really believe that. You just lashed out in anger. You just lashed out uh, in, in, in your pain. That means, secondly, do not respond to bitterness and pain with more bitterness and pain. If you ever start a sentence with, oh, yeah, stop. Okay, just stop. Go for a walk. And the colder it is outside, the longer the walk should probably be, right? What you need is, is a long walk out in the cold, right? You know, not this comfortable weather stuff in November. No, you need a cold walk, right? You just need to get out of the situation. Oh yeah, nothing good has ever come out of that. Nothing good has ever come out of that. In fact, isn't this what the Bible tells us? Proverbs 51, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If your sentence starts with, oh yeah, what you're not gonna get is, huh, I see your point. That is reasoned. That is nuanced. And now I repent with tears and ashes. Now what you're going to get is, oh, double yeah? Right? That's just not what you want. Or what about Proverbs 12? There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Or consider Proverbs 10. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. But, per but perverseness in it breaks the spirits. See, if you're David here, you're tempted to take everything personal, to feel like you've been assaulted all while forgetting hurt people, hurt people. Do not allow to, to be one of them. And so if your security and health is found in the approval of others, you will continue to, to unnecessarily suffer did Christ himself not patiently endure the insults and violence of his enemies? He did so with patience, knowing that the resurrection was about to happen. So if you, if you are David, I, I think that is some, some things to think about. But what if you are one of David's men? 
prone to scapegoat, prone to attack, prone to assaults. How should we respond in these situations? Well, let us say that perhaps mastering our emotions and pain is one of the hardest things to do as humans in this world. And being that we live in a society driven by feelings as opposed to facts, this is particularly difficult for the modern American, postmodern American, I should add to that. When our children are attacked, when opponents spread false rumors, when nasty things are published online, when feelings of betrayal and disappointments are high, we have a tendency, including we Christians, to completely lose ourselves. I still remember the first time I had to, I had to deal with a crisis as a referee. I was about 15, maybe 14. Just a young buck, right? It was, it was an age ago. Uh, this is back before cell phones and, and barely the internet, right? You know, the modem internet, right? Dial up. You, you young people, you have to Google uh, with your Wi-Fi connection what a dial-up connection is. But I remember at halftime, they were eight-year-olds, seven, eight-year-olds playing soccer. Just little kids, right? There's no skill. No one's going to achieve anything this day. But there's little kids having fun. And, and at halftime, I would take a ball and just kick it in the net. Just, it's five-minute halftime, just, just, you know, when I had energy, I was able to do that. And all of a sudden, I hear all this screaming and hollering behind me. What had happened was the wife of one of the coaches had walked all the way across the field to the parents with the local newspaper in hand. It's going to get that good. Local newspaper in hand and starts berating the parents because a paragraph was published by one of the parents of the other team rewriting what happened the previous week in the seven, eight-year-old game. And she was incensed. Who did this? We need to have a conversation. And, and, and she was a strong woman. By that, I mean that she, she could arm wrestle all of us combined and beat us. And, she, and, and, and I wasn't going to mess with her. And she's just berating. And then I saw dad stand up, pointing their finger. Don't you talk to me like that? Don't you mess with my kids like that? And mom's ready ready to, 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 to pounce when, when given the charge, right? Just, just give me the go, dear, and, and I'll, I'll hold her down, right? I thought, what is this over? One paragraph in a local newspaper that five people probably read. Why do we do this? Well, how do we respond when we are that scapegoat? The blame of everything that's gone wrong. The first thing, really the main thing is we need to be prepared for this. Just as it would be foolish to run a race without proper training. So, too, it is foolish to think you can handle a complicated and difficult situation without training the soul. Consider briefly this morning, what weaknesses do you have? Do you have a tendency to hold grudges? Are you prone to lash out? Do you internalize everything? Are you quick to blame others? Do you deny, deny, deny? Do you gather a posse and gang up on other people? Do you stir drama and make a situation worse? Do you like to complain online, subtweet, or seek justification from others? And what are you going to do about it right now? Not when the moment arises, but what are you going to do about it right now? What are your triggers? What are your insecurities and how do they fuel your responses? What burdens are you carrying on your soul right now? What fears do you have? What of the fruit of the Spirit do you need to grow Him? And why not make this a top priority? 
If you do not grow in these areas of weaknesses now, how many lives will be negatively impacted? Your children, grandchildren, relationships, co-workers, friends, family. By the way, do I need to remind you Thanksgiving's coming up? And that crazy uncle of yours, that bitter cousin that follows too much politics of yours will be there. Maybe you should start now learning how to properly respond to difficult situations. Do you not love your family, your friends, and everyone else in your life enough to take the necessary steps to improve your spiritual life and your emotional health? But if the first two responses are sorrow leading to anger, so, so, so the soldiers allow sorrow to lead to anger. What, what, what about David? He has sorrow, but where does it lead him? It leads him to take refuge. To take refuge. Notice the end of verse 6 there. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because of all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. See, contrary to his men, David's sorrow leads him to find refuge in Christ. His men turn to anger and bitterness while David turns to the Lord. That is to say, the men found in David someone to blame. David found in the Lord a refuge to hide in. The men pick up stones there at the beginning of verse 6. David picks up strength at the end of verse 6. We could go back to, to Psalm 25 for some insight here to, 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 to see what it is David is, is, is doing. He says in the first seven verses, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let, my enemies, uh, let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways. O Lord, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not my sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. You'll notice here, he is turning to, to Christ. He, he is bearing his soul. And he's saying this, Lord, I confess to you that I played a part in the situation we're in. Don't remember my sins. Forgive me of my sins because I recognize I am the blame here. And it's easy for me to say it's not my fault, it's your fault. But rather he, he begins with, no, 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 I, I, I did, did play a role in this. But I won't find grace in my enemies. I won't find grace in those who are angry at me. But I will find grace in Christ. Thus, take your insecurities, take the blame you deserve, take your sins, and lay it before the cross. Not before those who are shouting to you in person, online, or an email. He later is added in verses 19 to 22. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul. Deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all of his troubles. I think I found a good use of Twitter this week that didn't happen very often. But I found this quote. Complaining about God is a sin. Complaining to God is a psalm. 
See the difference? You see the difference? David takes all of his insecurities, all of his fear, all of his doubts, all of his sorrow, all of his pain, and he brings them before God. We call it a psalm. You can just call it a prayer. So you can find refuge in your anger and your bitterness and make a bad situation worse. You can find refuge in Christ. And thus, having found strength in Christ, David comes up with a plan here, doesn't he? Why? Because anger isn't a solution. Anger is destructive. It only makes a problem worse. Burning things down because you're offended or lashing out of people you claim to love because they said something nasty. Keying someone's car in a rage. This stuff ain't going to lead to peace and joy. Yet we believe the lie anyways. But humbly coming before a sovereign Lord who is gracious. That will bring peace, contentment, and joy to the soul. So here's David's plan. First of all, he sought God's counsel. This is what we mean by, by refugee. He seeks God's counsel. See there in 7 and 8. Uh, he, he brings with him Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech. That reminds us of what happened before. Remember, Saul slaughtered the priest. One guy survived. The son of the high priest, Ahimelech, Abiathar, he's there. He's got the ephod. Remember, David can't hear from the Lord by priestly means because he slaughtered the priest. That's going to cause problems. But he no longer has the ephod. Abiathar took it, and now David has it. So he brings Abiathar and says, bring that to me. So he, he brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this man? He doesn't know where they're from. He doesn't know where they've gone. He doesn't know anything. All he knows is God knows. Someone's got to have a plan here. The men want a scapegoat, but, but David has a plan. This is leadership. So he has a plan. He seeks God's counsel by priestly means. And this is the part of sorrow we often overlook. We often turn to Scripture only in search of comfort and healing, as good as that is. But we, we simply only want to feel better, but we don't think we need to be better. And David says here, not only do I need comfort and grace, but what I need are answers. I need to be better, a better leader. Remember, for several chapters, God has been silent from the mouth of David, but not anymore. He doesn't just need to feel better. He must need to be better. And this is going to change everything for David as king. The second thing David does is he follows God's counsel. There's a thought. There's a thought. So he sees there at, at, at the end of, of verse 8 where uh, God tells, um, tells him, pursue for you. Uh, pursue for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him they came to the brook of Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. And David pursued he and the 400 men, because 200 stayed behind because of they were exhausted. That's going to cause a problem later on. We'll see, Lord willing, tonight. Now, what separates David the shepherd from Saul the king is this right here. One simply hears the word of God and nothing changes. The other listens to the word of God and everything changes. And I would say it separates most Christians and everyone else sitting in pews. So we hear the word of God, but does anything change when we respond? David decides yes. You see, to David, God is king and his will must be obeyed. But to Saul, God is a voter in the situation. His opinion matters, but he still is king. What a difference this makes for David, isn't it? It's a different David here, isn't it? He, though a piano may have fallen on his head, is different simply because 
He turned to Christ. Do you ever consider how Christianity is unique in that it is rooted in suffering and sorrow? We don't worship a military hero, sword in hilt, wiping out the other tribes. We don't worship that sort of savior. But rather what we have is one who weeps in gardens and forgives from a cross. Sorrow and pain and fear and doubt and uncertainty are not unique to the gospel. It's at the core of it. And so the gospel doesn't mitigate sorrow, but it gives hope to the hurting, comfort for those who grieve. This is why Jesus calls on us all, particularly in a year like 2020, come to me. Come to me with your sin. Come to me with your sorrow. Come to me with your fear. Come to me with your doubts. Come to me with your uncertainty and you will find rest for your weary soul. And did he not bear all those sins upon the cross? Did he not bear all those sorrows upon the cross? Did he not bear all of those cares and burdens for us upon the cross? And if so, let us be free from them. Let us seek the Lord and there he will be found. May we move forward better because of it. Let's pray.